0: The weekly Hugh Demon. Full Steam Ahead. All right, Memorial Day weekend. As I mentioned last week, I can't do a regular podcast this weekend. But I am gonna provide you with a 30-minute History of the Catholic Church. So, I'm jamming basically 2,000 years of history into 30 minutes. It's actually closer to 35 minutes, but I came pretty close. It's a lecture I gave back in 2017. I think you're going to enjoy it as always. Thanks for listening. All right, I'm Eric Chesky. This is a Theology on Tap session, or as I said during the Mass, it's probably more like a History on Tap. Um, a couple of housekeeping matters. I'm gonna to try to get this done in 30 minutes. That that's the goal. I did a dry run, like two weeks ago, it took me an hour and a half. <laughs> got it down, got it down to an hour, um, then did the did the handout, got it down to about 40 minutes. I think I think I'll be right around 30 minutes. After the lecture, you can come and go for five or ten minutes. Uh, we're gonna break. If you don't want to stick around for the questions and answers, that's fine. If you do, great. But you know, you don't have to be for half an hour to get, to get the gist of it, so alright, so we're starting about the year 125-150 so it's about 100 years after Christ, after Christ died, Christ died about 30 AD but I want you to know two things from the three, the previous 100 years, take two things away from this lecture, Matthew 16:18. okay, everyone know what Matthew 16:18 18 is? It's, it's a verse where Christ goes to Simon and changes his name If you look throughout the Old Testament, whenever Christ changes someone's name, he has something big planned for them. Abram to Abraham. Something big is going to happen. And he tells Simon, he says, your name is now Peter, which in Greek means Petros, which is stone, or in Aramaic means Kaphos, which is rock. He says, on this rock, I'll establish my church. And it's a Catholic position that that was that was the church that Christ founded. Peter goes to Rome. The historical evidence is not conclusive, but it's pretty good that Peter went to Rome and with Paul established the church there became the first bishop. Peter dies. He had a successor named Linus. And then Anacletus and Clement, 266 popes down to today. We can trace it straight up back from St. Francis all the way back to St. Peter. I always thought Linus was so important I made my kids memorize the name Linus. And if they could say it, they, they could have dinner that night. So it's kind of harsh going up to my house. So, um, second thing I want you to take away read the Gospels, okay? In the Gospels, you would be struck by a continuing phrase. Basically, it says, He went about preaching, He went about teaching the synagogues, okay? And then the other references to, He taught the disciples in private. No reference in the Gospels what He was saying when He was saying these things. Okay. And we can assume he wasn't a stand-up comedian doing the same shtick over and over again. Okay. So he is saying things that we have no idea what they were. Okay. Or I shouldn't say no idea. We don't know what they were for sure because the Gospels don't record it. The Gospel of John ends on a similar type of note where he said, you know, there's so many more things we could report we couldn't even the, the world couldn't hold all the books. Okay. It's the church's position that that's where tradition comes from, that Christ actually implemented an, an institution called the church. When he, before he, when he died, rose again, he passed it on. Okay, So take those two things away. It wasn't like these church things evolved over many centuries. Right out of the gate, we had a church. Okay? We had that corroborated by Justin Martyr. I have a hand up there. Justin is a fascinating individual. He was born in 100 AD. Uh, he was a, actually a Catholic convert. And he wrote down what the early church was like. And if you read the handout, it's kind of jaw-dropping. If you look at what, what the Mass is like, for instance, it's the same Mass we have today. You know, some people are bored by the Mass. They want to change it up a little bit. It's like, well, you got to take it up with the big guy. And, and, and not, not Father Vilio, but the big guy. Like, and not the Pope, but the one above. Because okay? <laughs> arguably, that's what was instituted. okay? That's why I do the Mass. That's why I don't change the liturgy that much. Okay? Justin Martyr. Significant with Justin Martyr, keep in mind, you're talking about a guy who... Could have hung out and drank beer with people who hung out and drank beer with the apostles. We're not talking 100 years, 200 years. We're talking pretty close, chronological, you know, um, nearness. Okay. So it's really significant that you know a guy Justin Martyr is saying these things, and we know very, very early on that a guy who could have known guys who knew the apostles was saying these things about the church. So, what else know about the early church? Well, we know the name martyr. Okay. Being a Christian in the Roman Empire was not an easy thing. There, martyrdom was never far away. There are lots of persecutions for primarily just one reason. The, the Roman church is very tolerant, tolerant of other religions. With one caveat, you worship their gods, too. So if you're monotheistic, that's fine, that's cool, as long as you know, you're not monotheistic. That was the rule. And if you don't sacrifice to the gods, you're drawing down the empire, you're dragging on society, and you're going to be persecuted. Jailed, tortured, killed, and that was like the highest, the highest calling for Christian is you know, basically to be to be uh, to be martyred. Um, not everyone held up to it. A lot of people buckled, but that was, you know, that was uh, that was part of being a Christian back in those first three hundred years or so, two hundred fifty years. All that stops in three hundred thirteen. Okay, if you want to memorize dates, memorize the year three hundred thirteen. Three hundred thirteen. There's a Christian emperor named Constantine, and Constantine says this crap stops now. Okay. there would be no more persecution of the Christians Casting himself was kind of nominally Catholic okay? but, he, but he, he believed and he goes You're not getting, this is not going to happen anymore and it stopped and he actually made the church you know, basically acknowledged the church as an institution it could inherit property, it could hold property it became, became basically a societal force and the Roman Empire at that point came wrapped up with the Christian faith okay? with the Catholic faith about 50 years later Emperor Theodosius took it one step further and said well not only is this a sanctioned religion, it is the only religion. And they started tearing down the pagan temples at that point. Okay. And in my opinion, this is where it really starts getting interesting for, uh, with the Catholic Church. Because at this point, um, you can openly be Christian. Instead of 15-20% of the population being Christian, you have the majority being Christian. And you start getting... Um, People wanted, they wanted to do it, but they still want the martyrdom. You can't be killed anymore because Constantine said, knock it off. If you mess with the Christians, you mess with me. Okay? But people still kind of yearn for that martyrdom, in a way. That was the highest calling of a Christian. So what were they going to do now? Well, they opted for a thing, many did, for a thing called what they call white martyrdom. Shortly before Constantine, a guy named St. Anthony the Great was in Egypt. He sold all his possessions, and he moved out to an abandoned fort out in, out in Egypt and he, by worldly terms, he did nothing all day and he ate nothing all day. In spiritual terms, we say he prayed and fasted, okay? And that's all he did. He prayed and fasted, always. People got wind of it. They remember St. Anthony lived back in town and as they started going out to see this freak show, you know, let's see what this guy's doing, I envision teenagers out there throwing eggs at the fort, you know, it's like this guy's out there living by himself, doing nothing, you know, eating nothing. But they go out and meet St. Anthony and they start realizing this guy's not a freak, And they're actually impressed with what they saw. They thought they were going to meet a freak. Instead, they, they met a guy who actually had good advice. The guy could tell them a lot of things about themselves and, you know, very wise. So people started flocking out to see him, saying, Come see the holy man. Some people didn't leave. They wanted to be near the holy man. They started setting up cells around the holy man. St. Anthony didn't like that. You know, he wanted to be by himself, but that's what happened. So he basically spawns what's called the Anchorite movement, hermits. Which is, again, completely denying myself short of being killed cause I can't do that anymore. So I deny myself by giving everything away, moving out to the desert. That spawned all sorts of freaky movements. You had like the dendrites, they're called. These are people who lived in, hermits lived in trees. You had stylites. Stylites, they built these great tall 10, 20, 30 foot podiums and they lived up there their disciples had to bring them food up on pulleys, and they preached from there. I expect they defecated there. It was just, it was just, I, it was just sounds pretty nasty, but they're there 24-7, didn't come down for, for years. Okay, The church never really approved of these things. Fortunately, a man named Pacmonius, shortly after Anthony, started organizing these people into communities, started saying, you really shouldn't be out there by yourself. You really ought to you know kind of living in a community and that kind of spawns a monastic movement and we'll come back to monasticism um, a couple more times throughout this lecture let me see where i am here oh the other thing keep in mind as soon as christianity becomes like the, tr- the state religion all sorts of stupidity erupts now that you can openly talk about your faith people are openly talking idiocy Okay. There, was, there was a heresy for everything. There was nothing too stupid. There's a group of believers called the pagan nose people who thought you should walk around with your fingers and your nose and your mouth. Okay, We don't know much about them, but I assume they had real small hands. You know. but, or big but, noses. Yeah, big noses. Yeah, they, the Ethiopians or something. But yeah. Um, so again, there's, there's no heresy too stupid at this time period. But there were some... Some, some heresies that couldn't be messed around with had to be taken very seriously you had the Donat- I'm going dis- to discuss three okay? there's probably four or five major ones I'm going to discuss three. First off you have the, the Donatists big in North Africa they said basically one thing if you buckled during the persecutions if you gave it up and sacrificed to the gods you're not worthy and the sacraments you administer aren't worthy The church quickly condemned this. I mean, it's a very powerful movement, but a moments, reflection tells you you can't have this. I mean, it would be spiritual anarchy. Imagine the poor people with scruples who never know if they confessed all their sins. Now they know if the the priest confessed all their sins because he was stained. So, Donatism kind of died a quick death, although it was a very powerful movement. You had the Arians, A very, very powerful movement. Um, Basically thought that there was a time, since since Christ proceeds from the Father, there was a time when Christ wasn't. Therefore, Christ must be a created being, which makes him something less than God. More than man, but less than God. Arius, the guy who preached it, wasn't real clear. Um, That was condemned. We have our Nicene Creed. Year 325, Constantine said, I'm tired of all this... Cotton picking, bickering, let's get together and I see and figure it out. And the Orthodox position won, and we have the Nicene Creed from this to this day. Okay. My favorite heresy, not because it's funny, but just because the backlash was so harsh, was Monophysitism. This is the fifth century. Monophysitism taught that Christ didn't have two natures, and you know, we teach Christ is fully human, fully man, or fully God. Monophysitism said he has two natures. I mean, one nature, excuse me. This, this heresy fascinates I me, mean, it was condemned to the Cal- Council of Chalcedon in 451. But church councils always resolve these type of issues, okay? typically. Um, but anyway, so in 451, the council says, no, that's not right. He has two natures, not one. The monophysites didn't take it lying down, though. You know, not, heretics, heretics never do, quite frankly. Very few capitulate and say, oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. They, they continue to be disruptive. okay? Monophysites really, really disruptive, partly because they had the emperor at the time on their side, they had the former empress on their side, and they had thousands or tens of thousands of monks on their side. And they thought that Council Chalcedon dissed a guy named St. Cyril of uh, his teachings, which he didn't, but that's what they thought. And so they were riding in the streets. Finally, it's finally pushed out to the outskirts of the empire, out like near Iraq and stuff, which is fascinating because we have monophysites today which people don't realize that. You're not going to find an Aryan, at least not a a body of them. You're not going to find Donatists. You will find Monophysites, okay? Because what happened, they pushed out to the outside of the empire. They got thrashed when the Muslims invaded about 150 years later. The first Christians that the Muslims found coming out of Saudi Arabia were the Monophysites, who didn't fare too well. A lot of them converted to Islam. They're already psychologically kind of thinking one nature anyway, so it's kind of a smaller jump for them. But they did persevere through lots of persecution. And today we call them cops. C-O-P-T-S. So they're with us today. So what I find very fascinating is that the cops actually, they're in full communion with the Greek Orthodox Church as of, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. At some point, they got together, they compared notes, and they said, you know, we weren't that far apart. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't have been so lousy to each other. You know, So the Greek Orthodox Church and the Copts are now in full communion. Um, I know the hopeless John Paul II, he wanted to unify with the Greek Orthodox Church, which had it been pulled off, would have actually had a, all the ancient churches that traced the roots back to the apostles, all would have been under all in full communion with Rome at that point. We're not quite there yet, but but we'll get there eventually. We're very close. we right? like this far from unifying with the Greek Orthodox Church. Unfortunately, there's a wall like this big between it. So, but We're close, but oh so far still. Let me see. This period also brings in, right now we're in about the 5th century. And by the way, does to understand 5th century? When I say 5th century, I'm talking 400s. I'm saying 21st century today. I'm talking, you know, the 2000s. 5th century, something pretty significant happens. St. Patrick comes along. Okay, And I'll talk about the New World during this session. It's too much to get in. But St. Patrick is sent to Ireland. That was huge. Because Christianity, the Catholic Church, had kind of become identified with the Roman Empire. If it's Roman, it's us. If it's us, it's Roman. And if you're a Roman citizen, you're a Catholic. That's the way it was. And then they said, well, St. Patrick didn't go to Ireland. Ireland was never within the old bounds of the Roman Empire. I, mean, I don't know where this type of psychological thing came from. We... We have good evidence that the Apostle Thomas went to India, which is well outside the Roman Empire. But anyway, St. Patrick goes there, and now people realize, and he had such success converting the Irish people, everyone now realized the whole world is fair game. Okay, Without St. Patrick, arguably, we don't have a New World-type, you know, missionary-type efforts. So St. Patrick is huge. St. Patrick is also huge because he gives us the first example, the fruits of his labor gives us the first example of what we're seeing today. He goes to Ireland, he converts the Irish people, England at the time is Catholic. England gets overrun about this time by the Anglos and Saxons out of Germany who are pagan. England's Christian faith is pretty much extinguished. Through King Alfred you know, and some others, there's kind of an accord reach, but there's nothing left of Christianity. The Irish monks come over from, from Ireland. So you have, a, you have an example of a former pagan people being Christianized by the Christian people Return of the favor, kind of like we're seeing today. When what what maybe our pagan culture, the you know, United States today, we have to bring in priests from Africa or Colombia in our case to serve us because we just don't have enough. So this goes all right back to St. Patrick. So that's that's why St. Patrick is awfully significant. How far? How far are my time right now? So, anyway. I want to shift over to the early, basically the fall of the Roman Empire. If you ask about the fall of the Roman Empire, they'll say the Roman Empire fell in 476. That's not true. Okay? The Roman Empire greatly dwindled about this time, but if you would ask the average citizen in France, who are you a citizen of in 600, he would say, I'm a Roman citizen. Okay? Rome at that time only had about 20,000 people living in it, but they would have all said, I'm a Roman citizen. And you know Rome had about a million. So we're talking like uh, you know, a, a decline in Rome that makes Detroit look good, you know, by comparison. <laughs> okay? It reminds me of uh, my brother-in-law, Stan. His father-in-law is from Italy. They go back to Rome, and he wanted to see the Coliseum. And, and his, his uh, father-in-law says, Stanley, why do you want to see the Coliseum? It's a dump. When I was a teenager, we would shit in the Coliseum. He was dead serious. I don't. Know, apparently, the UN didn't have it on the heritage site yet. Um, but apparently, I think people are probably shitting in the Colosseum back in 600 as well. because okay? Rome is already greatly being decrepit, falling apart. But people still thought themselves as Roman citizens. Okay. Um, Fortunately, even though the Roman Empire is declining, you have these barbarian kingdoms rising, okay? And they're all Aryans, which is a huge problem. The Pope's basically surrounded by Arians, heretical Christians. But then a man named Clovis converts to Catholicism. And furthermore, he didn't do it for kicks or do it for political reasons, because he was surrounded by Arians. It's been easy to become an Aryan. He actually believed this stuff. Okay? And he was the king of the Franks. Okay? The Franks have very little in common with today's French. You yeah, have Frank, France, Yeah, the same people. But these were tough guys. In fact, they were the tough guys in the continent. No one messed with the Franks. Okay? Again, nothing in common with today's French except maybe the lack of deodorant. These are very, very tough people. And it came down with, you mess with the Pope, you mess with the Franks. Okay? So when Attila the Hun, you know, back in the 400s, got ready to invade Rome, Leo goes out there to deal with them. And the reason Leo goes out there is because there's a power vacuum. And so the Pope and the bishops, they're tossed into this political scene because no one else could deal with the stuff, okay? So Attila the Huns knocking on Rome, getting ready to invade. Leo the Great goes out there and talks to him. Attila leaves. It's a miracle. We don't know why he left. Some say, well, Attila saw Peter and Paul overhead, over Leo, and kind of freaked out and left. Some say Leo was so holy, you know, he's a saint, that Attila was so impressed he left. Some say Leo gave him a lot of money. You know, I, I lean towards the last one, and I'm kind of skeptical, I guess. But, but we never know. It made, it made me tell, maybe tell it was all three. You know, but but anyway, he left. But that that's to be symbolic to you that Leo had to do that. You know, what's Leo out there doing with the savage like a tell of the hunt? No one else. There was no one else left to do it. So he had this power vacuum. But the Pope didn't have much by way of armies. Clovis was his army. And Clovis' successes were his army. If you threaten the pope, you're threatening the Franks, and the Franks came in. The Lombards constantly threatened the pope. The Lombards are from Germany. They're good warriors. They pretty much conquered most of the Italian peninsula. The whole Pope just kept calling the Franks. He's like, fine, I got to get them back in here. And the Franks always won. That culminated in 750. Stephen II really has a dire threat. He calls him Pepin. Pepin comes in, thrashes the Lombards, like always. But this time, Pepin's like, I'm not sure I can always be here for you. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to take this territory I took from the Lombards, and I'm going to give it to you. We call it the Papal States. Okay? And he goes, so you know, next time you have your own armies, you have your own land, you, know, you have your own resources to fend off these type of barbarians. Not a good idea. Because now what do you have? You have a Pope who's now king. okay? And now you really start, you already saw with Leo... You always know, start seeing state and church starting to get intertwined. Now they're downright intertwined. And when the pope dies and the new pope has to be appointed, powerful families want their man in. Because that means money, that means warriors, that means power. And so now the, the church really starts becoming you know, corrupt in a lot of ways. Because the popes themselves aren't there to be spiritual leaders, they're there to be powerful, to help their families be more powerful. So it's a huge problem. Pepin meant well, but caused problems. Pepin's son Charlemagne becomes King of the Franks. Same thing, Lombards are threatening. He goes down. Leo III, though, on that time, down, down, does something a little bit different. He crowns Charlemagne as the Roman emperor. Okay, the Roman Empire basically fallen more or less in 476. We hadn't had an emperor in this part of the, the continent for 300 years. 334 years but now you had an emperor and Charlemagne took the crown which I never really still dispute what that means why did Charlemagne take the crown that made me crowning Bill Gates the wealthiest man in the world it's like well he's the wealthiest man whether they crown him or not Charlemagne's king no matter what he does so so anyway so he crowns him and at that point you have this really weird thing it's like Charlemagne's like I've been crowned by the pope that gives me some sort of spiritual authority and, and but I have some sort of responsibility, religious, warlike responsibility for the Pope. So the two become that much more intertwined, creating more problems. Okay. After Charlemagne dies, the Vikings come. This is the Dark Ages, 850 to 950. This is the area. This is the time period that just sucks. Okay, for for Europe. The Vikings. The Vikings are fierce. People don't understand. These aren't these aren't a sideshow. These are fierce people. They had an overpopulation problem apparently. Hard to believe by Scandi- you know, Scandinavian sexual standards today. It reminds me of a joke I thought of last week during mass. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what does Swedish semen and the Easter Bunny have in common? You know, neither exists. So, but <laughs> so, but back then though, the Scandinavians were producing prolifically. Okay, they and they had they had no more land, so they, they poured out of the north. Huge problems. There, there's actually there's a string of scholars today who think Scandinavian women are so hot because when the Vikings first raided, they took the best-looking women back with them. True story. Like, the good-looking women from Europe were gone. Um, they're up in Scandinavia. But eventually, they actually settled. They said, hey, it's warmer down here, it's nicer down here, we're settling here. And they, they slowly started converting, okay, because they settled in Christian lands and they married Christian wives. And the Vikings overall finally converted in, in total by about late, late 900s. Um, and that—that's huge. And keep in mind, we still have missionary activities. You had Cyril and Methodius converted the Slavs. I just want to—I did actually write this down. But during this time period, you have like Poland, the Slavic countries, all converting in the same time period. So by 1000, you have a, a, a very powerful arc. Everything from Dublin to Moscow, from Oslo down to Palermo, Sicily—it's all Catholic. Okay. And yes, they bickered and they warred among themselves, but everyone else was an outsider, and. They became a real force. Okay? Dark ages are over by 1,000, which is very significant. How much time am I at, sweetheart? What am I at? 22 minutes. 22 minutes, okay. So, okay. so a bunch of things happen after 1,000. You have a monastic renewal. I love the, monast- the studies of monasticism. Here's what happened. People like St. Anthony go out. They, they found a monastery. Okay? They're holy. They're, doing this, they're not doing this for money. They, they really believe this stuff. Okay. People come with them, and they get this reputation for holiness, Rich people or the laymen, are impressed, so they give up money. Okay? They couldn't do this before. Back when the Vikings were there, there's an old saying that said the Vikings came to Europe, the red of Europe of the curse of gold. Because they took all the gold. So commerce pretty much just dwindled. There's no means, there's no means of exchange. So they had to pay their warriors in land to support their warriors monasteries suffered from this. Well, after 1,000, commerce returns. You can start endowing monasteries and they take off. You have Cluny, the Cistercians, Carthusians, all established during this time. They have 1,000 affiliate monasteries among just those three. Now, think about it. You're talking thousands of monasteries just explode in the scene here over the next couple hundred years. The 11th century also is the height of papal power. We're talking about you know, the papal states. Well, it reached its height. What happened there, Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, Gregory VII, we call him Hildebrand, they get in a dispute over investitures. Basically, who gets to appoint the bishops? Because again, bishops have power, still do. They have land, okay? So Henry saying, Henry IV says, I do. Gregory VII says, I do. It's a stalemate. Gregory VII excommunicates Henry IV. Henry IV wasn't much of a Christian. I don't think he really cared, but the German nobles use it as an excuse to strike against the Holy Roman Empire. They start rebelling. Henry IV has to freak out. He sits for two days in the snow, asks for forgiveness from Gregory VII. Gregory VII forgives him. And it's really humiliating for the Holy Roman Empire, but that's considered like the apex, the very highest of Vatican power in the political sphere. We'll see this dynamic repeat itself in a couple hundred years. With the return, with the end of the Dark Age, the return of commerce, you have another monastic renewal in the sense of like St. Anthony, in the sense that people are saying, we ought to be poor. Christ was poor, Christ died, what's with this wealth prosperity, you know, this, this prosperity gospel um, we need to be poor this is the backlash against all the wealth, that's where St. Francis and St. Dominic come from, okay um, this time also you see Europe going on, the, going on the offensive, okay you have, I mentioned all these different you know, um, groups invading Europe, at this time we go back, we, we take it back to the Muslims in the form of the Crusades, Okay, and the Crusades would be a great lecture, by the way. But what you have to understand about the Crusades is an uneasy peace had come in reach between the Muslims and the Christians, and the Muslims would control the Holy Lands, and our pilgrims could go there worship unmolested. Unfortunately, the Seljuk Turks invaded Asia Minor, started putting pressure on the on the the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine Empire goes to the west and says, "You guys are doing pretty well for yourself. Now, can you send some of these guys over to help us fight?" We're tempted, but not sure we want to disrupt this uneasy relationship. Well, then the Seljuk Turks said, Why are we letting these infidels into our country to go to the Holy Lands? So they start attacking them. The Pope say, We have a lot of young men who want to fight because we've been very populist for the past hundred years. And they come out and they come back and say, I think we could take these guys. The Seljuk Turks aren't that tough. You know, we're fighting them on these pilgrims. And they invade in mass force. Urban II calls for a crusade. And they have limited success. We actually set crusader kingdoms, and it goes well uh, for a little while. But then ultimately, they, they give way to demographics. You know, just you're in a Muslim sea, and it's just the, the, the kingdom's folded, kind of like Europe is today. Um, during this time period, you have, um, again, this is the height of Catholic culture. You have St. Thomas Aquinas, the best, probably the best thinker of all time. Will Durant, uh, fallen away Catholic. No tolerance for Catholic thought whatsoever. But a fair man. He ranks... St. Thomas Aquinas is number three thinker of all time. And coming from a secularist like Will Durant, that's quite a, quite a compliment. Universities can established; you. The Sorbonne, you have uh, Cambridge, Oxford, Salamanca, all established during this time period. Mystics are rock stars. You can just go through a who's who's list of, of mystics. Uh, John Rowell, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, Bonaventura, Meister Eckhart, all popular, famous. I mean, these, are, these are like the celebrities of the day, mystics. That's what Europe was like. Unfortunately, at this point, the decline sits in. I analogize if you golf and you're on the twelfth hole, and you're having a great round, okay? You, you chip in 125 yards out and you eagle hole number twelve, and you're having a great round. And then you get a hole number thirteen, and you duff it in the woods. You go back to the tee box and you 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 duff it again, you end up taking a twenty, okay, on the on the hole. The, your you're on shot. That's the thirteen hundreds, okay? Now I wish I could spend more time in the thirteen hundreds, but you has have you have famines, you have crop failures. You have the Avignon uh, captivity, where a Frenchman became pope and said he'd rather live in Avignon. That went on for 70 years. He, his successor, Gregory Eleventh came back. Captain Sienna pressured him to. He thought Captain Siena had effectively killed two of his predecessors because she told him them to go back, and they ignored her, and they dropped dead. Uh, so Gregory Eleventh goes back to Rome, but there's, there's a tarnishing. You know, this idea that this is kind of a French thing. It's not a Roman. You know, the Romans still had, you know, this, they still had this aura. If it's Rome, it's universal, okay? When they went to Avignon, that it tarnished its reputation. And then after Gregory dies, Urban VI gets appointed. Urban VI um, was a real SOB, okay? Mentally unstable, we're not sure, but he used his power as pope to take vengeance on his adversaries, even torturing some cardinals, cardinals got together and said, ah, that wasn't a bad election. Let's elect someone else. You can't do that. You're a pope for life unless you resign. Herman wasn't giving up this power slot, so now you have two popes. It's called the Great Western Schism. A group of peacekeepers come together and they said, Let's just, okay, fine, um, you two are done. we have a third pope. So now you have three popes out there. And now the church is just a laughingstock. You yeah, had three popes, because the other two didn't resign. They all said, no, we're all valid. So this went on for, again, like another, I think about 70 years, in like 14, 18 or so. This gets resolved at a council, and uh, Martin V is appointed, and the others step aside. But the damage has been done. The, the reputation of the, uh, that you're talking in the early 1400s, it's, it's terrible, um, the reputation of the Vatican. And now you have the plague hitting. People don't understand the plague. We joke about it today, but just figure half of well, the European population wiped out by the plague. Possibly even worse, far more than half of the clergy are wiped out. Okay, What people don't understand is, it's, I know I'm running low on time, but it's kind of scientific, the best way to avoid deal with the plague. When the plague first hit your town, what you do is you, you, take, you take all your clothes and you put them on a table, Okay, and you wrap twine around them, and you put your clothes under your arm, and you get the hell out. <laughs> That's what you do. To avoid the plague, you get out of town. Okay. The good clergy don't do that. The good clergy, they stay back because they want care for the sick and suffering. So you have 60%, 70 80% of the clergy, the nuns and priests, wiped out by the plague. In Paris, an entire order was completely wiped out, 100% all gone. So now, now, now socioeconomically, you have just a train wreck of a culture. The leaven, the best parts of society, are all dead as well. So it's almost like you're starting from scratch in a lot of ways. Um, you have the Hundred Years' War. Again, everything that could go wrong in the 14th century went wrong. In the Hundred Years' War with Joan of Arc, but large parts of France um, destroyed. You have a school called nominalism kicking out, got him William of that basically teaches a fierce type of subjectivism that the only reality you can know is a reality in your head. Okay, and that led to kind of rejection of authority, and it actually leads down to thinking in the Reformation regarding, you know we don't need authority, you know, the inner light's within ourselves type thing. So, shift over over to the Reformation, okay? 15 to 17, Martin Luther is upset that the Catholic Church is trafficking in indulgences. I can't get in indulgences, but basically you have to keep in mind a very fundamental distinction. The Catholic Church, if it's instituted by Christ himself, can be the means of grace, okay? And so the Catholic Church is like, Gabe's here, God's here, and the Catholic Church is going to help him to his sacraments to get gave to God. Okay, the reformers reject that notion. so, uh, and so in, in that regard, by the way, they can they set the rules. You know, this is how the sacraments. This is how grace is received. Indulgences are, are in that realm. Okay, Luther rejects that. Okay, so I always respect Luther. I never respect that either. Though he's just out to reform it. I think he's out for rebellion right away because he rejects that fundamental premise. Hence, he called the Pope the Antichrist because he stands between God and man. Okay, and once you reject that all sorts of conclusions follow from it which the reformers followed rigorously um, coupled with this you have a holy roman empire that's possibly at its zenith in 1500 it's extremely powerful the Habsburgs are militarily awesome they have intermarried with other powerful families and they control large swaths of Europe and people are kind of freaked out about this the pope himself is freaked out by the Habsburgs Okay. So when Luther then gets in this fight with the Pope, Pope excommunicates Luther, Luther has the Saxony on his side already, all the princes, just like they did with Henry IV, say this is our chance, let's take a shot at the Habsburgs. We can join Luther and we can start grabbing church land, we can start grabbing lands from the Habsburgs and basically all hell breaks loose, okay? This will culminate in the Third Year's War. Well, the Habsburgs, even though they had, they had lots of adversaries, were so powerful they constantly won. They they, they constantly beat their their the Protestant adversaries, and you yeah, had the, the Danish Lutherans came to their came to the Protestants' aid to bail out to beat the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs then turn around and they beat the next force, but then the Swedish Lutherans bail them out. And then finally, Catholic France bails out the Protestant forces because France really hated the Habsburgs. So it wasn't about religion to Catholic France. They, it was all political war. This finally gets resolved the Treaty of Westphalia, okay, um, 16, I think it was 43. Treaty of Westphalia is huge for modern errors because under the Treaty of Westphalia, um, each nation picked its own religion, you know, Luther or Catholic, and that's how they resolved it. They said, let's stop fighting because even though it's largely political, no doubt, religion was driving a lot of it. So the treaty was fairly kind of resolved those resolved those things. Okay. The next things go pretty fast. Um, 17th, 18th centuries, the Catholic Church's power just keeps plummeting. The papal states keep shrinking, but fortunately, its relig- religiosity keeps increasing. Okay, it's like the more less secular it becomes, the more spiritual it becomes. Um, this basically comes to a conclusion, 1870, you have the King of Sardinia reunite Italy, often militarily. One of the, la- one of the last holdouts was the Papal States. They lost, battled 1870, Papal States are eliminated. And that ended all, the Pope's entire temporal power was ended in 1870. Again, possibly a good thing. Um, 1929, the papacy was the they got Vatican City back. That was Mussolini and the, the Italian legislature said through the Lateran Accord, we'll give you back Vatican City, which is what we have today. So it still it has its own state, but that's it. That's Vatican City. And that's as far as we can go today. That's it. So, so all right. It is warm in here. Goodness gracious. So,